All right, grab your Bibles and let's return to um, this, this Magna Carta of the Christian faith, the book of Romans. And uh, we move to verse 18 tonight, and um, um, I, I, don't, I hope you don't mind this, but with the, uh, with the introduction of verse 18, we're going to slow down again, because there is a, um, there is a very um, wonderful thing being included in this, embraced in this text, and so I want to spend plenty of time on it. So um, um, the last time I was with you, which was two weeks ago, um, we closed, of course, with verse 17, And you'll notice in that last clause of verse 17, uh, Paul again is uh, talking about our position in Christ. And and then in this last clause, he says, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. You know, I didn't make much of a point of this uh, two weeks ago because I really didn't see it until it got put down next to verse 18, which is really probably one of the best statements, actually the next nine verses is one of the best statements to be found anywhere in the New Testament concerning the subject of suffering. Uh, Look at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed to us. And and, um, so my point simply is, guys, in this last clause of verse 17, Paul introduces us to a new truth, This, this issue of suffering. And then he goes on to identify it, or set it next to, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. And so he develops that thought over the next uh, eight or nine verses or so. And the, the thing that I want us to see in verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory. Paul introduces us to a, a, another... Um, very significant doctrine known as glorification in verse 18. Actually, he's hinted at it in verse 17. But he's going to develop it further in verse 18 and and following. Uh, His other theme in this section is indeed suffering. But what you see happening here in verse 17 and 18 is Paul is linking two things that you and I would probably not link together. Paul links together suffering and glory. He puts side by side hurts and hallelujahs, which is not two things that we would, that we would generally speaking, I don't think, uh, associate and put them side by side. But what I want to do in terms of, I mentioned that I wanted to slow down. I wanted to, um, I wanted to go over this, this, uh, this word and which is a, which is of course a, um, a marvelously evangelical doctrine of, um, uh, of glorification. Now, in the in the evangelical, in the average evangelical mind, uh, when you mention glorification, it comes along with a couple of other words. We're looking at glorification, um, but normally when we think of that, we think of it, and you know, and I and I do this all the time. I've done this thing. We think of glorification, sanctification. We 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 lump them into this triad uh, of three terms: justification, sanctification, and glorification. And I have um, uh, boldly make a, made a statement, which I, which I really kind of stand bes- behind. Um, the, the statement being this, if you understand those three terms, justification, glorification, and justification, sanctification, glorification, um, you understand, and, and this is, I, know, I have no way of proving this, this is just a, you know, a, a 
pastoral piece of apoplexy, I guess. But anyway, um, that you understand more than 85% of the Christian church. If you understand those three, justification, sanctification, glorification, uh, you've got a grasp of evangelicalism. Interestingly, at least to me, I think the word, the one of these three that is the, the, the most, under, I tell you what, which one, I mean, I'm, this is just an opinion, but which one do you think is the most understood of those three things? Okay, my opinion is this one. <laughs> we know more about sanctification than we know about justification and glorification. Particularly this one, ladies and gentlemen. The Christian church is in, is, <laughs> Did I ever tell you the story? I did tell you the story, didn't I? Um, you know, um, I, I, I went to seminary in 72 and graduated in 75 and, and started the church in Ocala, Florida in 1975. And this was in 1984. So about eight or nine years later, I mean, I've been in the ministry. I was, I was a church planner for eight or nine years. And, and um, I, I know I've told you this story before. I, I'm sorry for those of you. But anyway, I, uh, I was invited to the home of R.C. Sproul for supper. Maybe you've heard the name R.C. Sproul. Well, he's one of my heroes. And R.C. invites me to his home for supper. And I'm going through this terribly hard time and, and just really, yeah, just whining uh, to beat the band. And he and I are sitting in the living room. Well, Susie and uh, Vest are putting supper on the table. And, and um, I mean, I'm just whining to beat the band with R.C. And he looks at me and he says, let me tell you something. Your problem is you do not understand the doctrine of justification by faith. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I'd been in a pulpit for eight, nine years. And you know what? R.C. was right. And and I'll tell you where I got a better grasp, certainly not a comprehensive grasp, but a better better grasp, is in Romans 5, 6, and 7. The the, the breakthrough for me in terms of justification came in Romans 7, verse 4. And I'm reading it in a McDonald's in Vienna, Austria, where, where, where Paul talks about being married to Christ. Oh, that was glorious for me. But anyway, the point is, guys, I think we know a lot about this one, and I think we think we know a lot about this one, and I don't think we think we know very much about this one. And I agree, I don't think we know much about this one. I think we think we do know a lot about this one, but we don't know as much about it as we ought to know and need to know. But that's not our subject tonight. That one is. This one we seem to have down. We kind of know that that means growth. Um, and we know that this is the beginning of the Christian experience. And, you know, everything between the beginning and that's the end. And, and so we come to this thing here. And um, our conclusion is this. Uh, here we sing this song. And by the way, I've contributed to, the, uh, to this um, mistaken notion. We sing this song that goes like this. Oh, that will be glory for me, glory for me, glory for me, when by His grace I shall look on His face. That will be glory, be glory for me. Well, gang, the point is, that that song is misleading. Because what it suggests to you is that glorification is to be identified with your entrance into heaven. And ladies and gentlemen, that ain't it. I'll say it's a part of it. And it's a significant part from our, from our view. But ladies and gentlemen, glorification is that. But it's far more than that. You, couldn't, you can't stop um, understanding this glorification thing by saying, well, yeah, glorification is, you know, when I go to heaven. No. No, no, no. 
let me, let me just tease you a bit. If that's it, Satan wins. If that's all glorification is, that you get a ticket to heaven stuck in your pocket and you get to go to spend an eternity in heaven, if that's all glorification is, then the devil won. So it's not simply your admission into heaven. That's what I mean when I say, well, yeah, we know a lot about this. You know, you go to Bible, you go to church, and you study your Bible, and you pray some, and you give some money, and yada, 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 yada. And we know this is when we start. Yeah, we don't know much about it, but we know that's when it starts. And over here, this is when we go to heaven. We got the understanding. Slow down. Because it's, it's far more than that. And far more thrilling to be able to tell you about, gang. Because um, what you have in store is far more than, than your admission to heaven. So that's what I want to do tonight, is kind of define what glorification is and then show you a couple of things we'll be through. But um, um, glorification, if, if um, this is, and I don't even know where I got this definition, but uh, here's, here, here's kind of a summary definition of glorification. It is the ultimate end of our salvation, guys. Um, it is full and entire deliverance from sin and all its effects on the body, the soul, and the spirit, and creation. It is the full and entire deliverance from sin and all of its impact and all of its effects and all of its tentacles in and, 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 and every way that it has impacted our body, soul, and spirit, plus... This creation. Guys, look down with me. Um, um, look at verse 20. We're going to get to this later. Um, uh, verse 20, it says, For the creation was subjected to futility. In another place, um, and I, I thought it was here, but I, it might be in Second Corinthians where Paul says, The creation groans. Well, it does, ladies and gentlemen. Have you ever watched, have you ever watched a, a bunch of birds eating in your backyard? You know, they're just kind of, they're kind of jittery. Well, what are they so afraid of? They're afraid of you. But the, the, the book of Isaiah in particular says there's going to come a day when the lion's going to lay down with the lamb. Nobody's going to be afraid of that. The lion's not going to be afraid of the lamb. The lamb's going to be afraid of the lion. And, you know, and the birds are not going to fear me anymore. Because sin has affected the place you, on the planet you live. And, and all of that is going to be undone. Now, let me, let me try to put it in some points for you. First of all, gang, God made us, as you well know, in his image. Man occupied a, a, a very unique uh, position of dignity. The word that I love, I don't know whether you like this word, but the word that I see used a lot is the word vicegerent. That is, man uh, was created to be a vicegerent. He's a, he's a deputy to the king. Uh, our, our posture and position prior to Genesis 3 is that we are a vicegerent. We have this unique position of dignity. That didn't last very long. Genesis 3 occurs. The, um, the great cosmic car wreck uh, called the fall. And um, that thing is over. Um, the... Uh, this position of man loses his position of glory and dignity um, that he originally possessed. 
And that loss shows up in just about every facet of his being. The the impact of the fall, taking him from this high, dignified position to where we are today, it, it shows up in just about everything we are and do. Have you ever had a hundred percent pure motive? <laughs> you know that you know what the Great Commission is, excuse me, Great Commandment is, don't you? The Great Commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and your neighbor as yourself. And you haven't done that for fifteen seconds in your entire life, nor have I. Because of this car wreck, gang, the, uh, the position that we once occupied, we no longer occupy. But the real tragedy of mankind, gang, is that we no longer are who God designed us to be. That position of vicegerent is gone. But it's memory. It's aroma. It's, it's still out there, and man knows that there's something that's missing. And we spend our lives trying to regain it. We know there's something not quite right with us. And so we do all kinds of odd things to regain this position that we once enjoyed. There is nothing, gang, more characteristic of a sinful man than his restlessness. You know that, that, that wonderful text? And, uh, don't turn. Let me just read it. But um, uh, This is in Isaiah chapter 57, verse 20. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. We just can't quite rest. There's a... There's never a serenity to our soul. We look around us and we see the world that's, that is full of ambition and full of jealousy and envy and rivalry. And, you know, gang, um, you parents who uh, send your kids off to schools and they come back and they, uh, their kids are just damaged by what happened at school that day because there's such yin, 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 yin. you know, you see it in the junior, I guess you see it in elementary school, you see it at the office, you see it in the neighborhood. Folks, all because we have fallen from that position that we were intended to occupy. Um, that restlessness that we feel is an attempt to feel down deep within us what we were meant to experience, what we ought to have experienced, and what was once ours. We're always seeking glory. We're always seeking praise. We're always seeking honor. And we had it! But we hadn't had it. Quite a while. We um, we find ourselves longing for that thing that we 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 only have an aroma of it, 
but we, we compete with our peers. We try to get one step above him, and, and um, we, we want to be on the top. We want to be praised. We want to have people recognized. We want honor. Uh, we crave position. We crave elevation. We crave glory, which is the thing that we lost in the fall. You know, gang, this may be a little bit hackneyed, and it may be a little bit um, old-fashioned. Um, it may be, it may tell you how old I am, but it amazes me that even today, and I can't tell you how old this song is, but the song, Everybody Wants to Rule the World. Tears for Fears. And you know what? They are still playing it. They're playing it today because inside, they're right. Everybody wants to be restored to the glory that they once had before sin entered and we fell. That's what we're after. So, gang, glorification is really not glorification if the only thing that happens is that you and I go to heaven. I, I, I love the fact that we're going to heaven, gang. But what glorification suggests is that everything, everything is going to be put back the way it was before sin entered. Every effect, every impact, every, every scar, every wound that was opened up in you and me by the entrance of sin and all those wounds and scars and aches and pains and bruises that have happened to the creation that groans, it's all going to be set back the way it was before sin entered. And if that is not so, if the only thing that God does is get you and me to heaven, the devil wins. If for nothing else, the world is still scarred. But what glorification says, folks, is that man will enjoy that entire perfection that he once had before sin entered. Not only will he enjoy what he lost, but there's going to be more. Even Adam would have experienced more had he not sinned. But man, we're forever trying to recapture this. And what glorification says is, you're going to. God is going to set the book straight. Everything that was lost will be restored in Christ and more. Now, there's one final note that I, uh, th- that's what I wanted to do first is, is try to give you a decent definition of this term glorification, which you find mentioned You find it mentioned in verse 17. You might find it mentioned in verse 18. And then you're going to find it more in these next nine verses or so. But there's a couple of things that I want to do and then we're finished. One of the common 
commentators that I read um, made an observation that really stirred me. And so I thought, okay, well, I'm going to go find out whether he's right. Well, actually, I mean, he, he made his own argument. I didn't have to do much finding out, but he, he, he made this observation. He asked this question. He said, have you ever noticed that when Paul and other New Testament writers mention glory, they never do so without also mentioning suffering. When the New Testament writers get ready to introduce you to glory, right alongside it is the mention of suffering. Now, folks, just because I, I just want... I want you to chew on that some. I, let me just show you a couple places. Uh, you might want to take a look at these. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, where you find, For our light affliction, there's the affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things that are seen, etc., etc. There it is, side by side. Affliction and glory. How about Colossians chapter 1? Uh, language is a little bit different, but the same idea is there. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. For I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which has given to me for, to, for the mystery which has been hidden from the ages and generations, etc., to whom God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. There it is, side by side again. Not Literally side by side, but in the same sentences. Affliction, glory. Then one more, just Second um, Timothy chapter 2, uh, verse 12, where you find just a half of a verse. If we endure, we shall also reign. If you endure, you reign. If, in fact, that's really what he said, gang, in verse 17. You'll notice you've got the same if. In Romans 8.17, where he says, um, uh, joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him. So what the New Testament writers are, are doing, gang, is setting down beside each other two things that we don't normally put in the same sentence. We want... That positive thing, call it whatever you like, glory, whatever. But this other thing is something that we write checks to avoid. But the New Testament puts those things side by side. It's utterly remarkable, ladies and gentlemen. And yet, it has been one of Christianity's greatest stumbling blocks throughout the centuries of the history of the church, in spite of the clear teaching of the Bible. Most Christians are still, well, most, most evangelism, no, no, a lot of evangelism still gives the impression that if you become a Christian, then your troubles are over. And then pain arises and uh, the person bolts and they they say, I tried that God thing, but it just didn't work. 
Because what was supposed to work is if I got the God thing down, all my trouble was supposed to be over. No matter how clear the Bible is about this subject, folks, somehow there is this latent hope in us that if we do the right things, if we all do the right things, then life is going to work out for us peachily. May I inform you that the one who did absolutely everything right ended up on a cross. That is a myth, my brother and sister in Christ. It is a myth. The New Testament would have you know, seated right next to glory is the assurance and the promise of suffering. Now, we're going to talk about this far more because the next nine verses will, but I want you to see one thing as we close because this, I just, I'd like for you to turn with me. If you can find First Chronicles 12 real fast. First Chronicles 12. And we got seven minutes and I think we can do it in seven minutes. Um, guys, I think you know the... Um, Actually, it's 1 Chronicles 11. It starts in 11. 1 Chronicles 11 and 12. I think you know the, a little bit of the history of, uh, of Israel. Um, you know, Saul was the first king, but he was not a good boy. And, and so uh, David started arising, and Samuel anoints David as king. And then David is running around, uh, running away from Saul. And he ends, up, um, he ends up being anointed king after the Philistines had killed Saul and, his, and Jonathan. David ends up being crowned king in Hebron. He starts his kingship in Hebron. That's what you find in, in 1 Chronicles chapter 11. He, he is king, but he is not uh, recognized as king all over Israel. He starts in Hebron. He spends seven years there. He ultimately goes to Jerusalem, and it's uh, Joab that leads his forces up there. And, and we can talk about that another time. But the, but the point is, in the rest of this, um, um, uh, beginning in chapter 11, verse 10, um, if you've got a Bible like mine, you will notice that this is a section that talks about the mighty men of David. Do you see that? Men like um, Jashobeam, that's in verse 11. He had lifted up his spear against 300 killed by him at one time. After him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the Ahohite who was of the three mighty men. He was with David at Pasadamim. And now there the Philistines were gathered for battle, and there was a piece of ground full of barley, and they stationed themselves in the middle and killed Philistines. The Lord brought a great victory. And then from there, from this group of three mighty men, he goes to the group of 30 mighty men. And he continues to talk about mighty men, mighty men, mighty men. Now, ladies and gentlemen, <coughs> look with me at chapter 12. Uh, yes, chapter 12, verse 22. For at that time, they came to David day by day to help him until it was a great army like the army of God. Now, here's my point, gang. David, this new king, this Christ figure, this type of Christ, is gathering around him a what? A club? A trade union? A discussion group? He's gathering around him an army! Now tell me, when I say army, 
What things do you associate with army? How about war and conflict and death and struggle and pain and loss and and deprivation? Folks, where is that emphasis in 21st century evangelicalism? Ah! David didn't get together a club! And do you know how mighty men became mighty men? They fought. They won battles. They conquered. They struggled. They suffered. Gang, it's we who are confused, and we didn't get confused from this book. Because this book is clear. The people who are drawn and attracted and gather around the new king to become mighty sign up knowing there's going to be a fight. You can name the fight. Maybe it's your own flesh. Maybe it's the pluralism and relativism. I don't know. But gang, where do you find that emphasis in 21st century evangelicalism? I meant to bring with me, and I, but I, it's in my desk drawer. I forgot to bring it. Folks, do you know what we're seeing in, in the Christian church across America? We're seeing some, some, some places getting larger and larger. And do you know what's happening to overall church attendance? You do know, don't you, that overall church attendance in America is on its way. It's in, a, it's in decline. So all of this gathering of big ecclesiastical things is not producing expansion of the kingdom. It's producing a retreat. And I, for one, am convinced that part of the reason is that nobody is telling folks that when the New Testament writers got ready to talk about glory, the thing that they set down next to it was the promise of suffering. Mighty men? We got any of those? Any of us? Any of us qualify? I'll tell you how to get there. You fight and you win. In the name of Jesus. Let's quit. Our Father, I do pray that you would remind us that you have not been silent. You have not cloaked any of this truth anywhere. It's... It's very evident and frequent in your word that those who lay hold of this Christ join a fellowship of suffering. And yet, O oh God, you set that suffering in the context of glory. Create within us, O God, 
love of both. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Good night, all.